You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. SlammableDickCaves.com The Internet In 2014, the Chicago Reader, my city's finest alternative newspaper, interviewed me for the Best Of issue, and I assumed, naturally, that I would be named Best Stand-Up Comic in Chicago. I was not. I was named Best Drunk in the City. Your wife is never thrilled when a newspaper names you the best drunk in town. But she will be particularly bothered when you are named the best drunk in Chicago. This is a city of over 3 million people that is mostly known for getting blind drunk at baseball games and partying so hard on St. Patrick's Day, it dyes the river green. How did they do that? Dying the Chicago River green. Chicago has been dying its river green for St. Patrick's Day for half a century. And you would think a project of that size. We're talking about changing the physical makeup of a river that moves 2 billion gallons of water a day in America's third largest city. You would think that would be a careful, well-planned operation. And if you thought that, well, you're not from Chicago. Chicago's official slogan should be, I know a guy. Because everything in this city gets done by buddies from the neighborhood. And the tradition of dyeing the river is no different. It was a spur-of-the-moment idea from Steve Bailey, the head of the Plumbers Union, president of the Chicago St. Patrick's Day Parade Commission, and, probably more important than either of those titles, neighborhood buddies with Mayor Richard J. Daley. In 1961, the city of Chicago started to identify and punish polluters of the Chicago River. They employed plumbers to insert green dye at various locations that would help identify which pipes or businesses were illegally dumping into the river. One day, one of the plumbers returned to Union headquarters, covered in green from the colorant, and Bailey noticed this brilliant emerald hue. Being in charge of the city's annual St. Patrick's Day parade, he started to dream up the idea to use the dye on the entire river. The following is a description from Bailey's assistant on how they planned the entire operation that afternoon after Bailey saw a plumber with the green stain. And this is a fascinating insight of how fast and loose the city of Chicago was with its water supply. The following is an excerpt from The Man Who Dyed the River Green, Stephen M. Bailey, by Dan Linden then assistant to Stephen M. Bailey. When the plumber left and we were alone, 
Bailey turned to me and asked, Why couldn't we dye the whole river for St. Patrick's Day? I'm serious. Who would know about this? Reaching for a straw, I answered Captain Manley, the port director. He's the only one I know that answers questions about the Chicago River. In a second, Bailey was on the phone to Captain Manley. Bill Barry, the first deputy port director, happened to be in Manley's office when the call came in and related the following conversation. Say, John, said Bailey, I've been wondering whether we could dye the river green for St. Patrick's Day. What do you think? It might work, said Manley after a moment's hesitation. Just a minute. Manley turned to Barry and put the question to him. Gee, Cap, I, I don't know, said Barry. If the fire department can shoot colored water into the air from its boats, I don't see why we shouldn't try it. Manley went back to the phone and told Bailey he was sure it could be done. That story is amazing. As a narrative, it might be more fascinating and more chilling than the creation of the atomic bomb. The fact that in 1961, you could just call the harbor master, reach the assistant and say, Yeah, hi, uh, I want to dick around with your river, change the color for a few days, throw a parade. And not only is the call taken seriously, you get a tentative yes in under one minute. And better than their planning was their execution. Bailey and his plumbing buddies procured a green fluorescent dye from the same company that provides dye for Navy rescue operations. When a sailor or pilot falls into the ocean, they break a dye packet, which spreads this bright green patch across several acres, making it easier to spot and recover them. In those situations, only a few ounces of dye are needed to cover a fairly sizable area. Bailey and his plumbers bought several hundred pounds. The river stayed green for a week. Better yet was Bailey's response when a few Chicagoans started to worry that the green coloring might never dissipate. He resolutely gave the following statement. The Chicago River will die the Illinois, which will die the Mississippi, which will die the Gulf of Mexico, which will send green dye up the Gulf Stream across the North Atlantic into the Irish Sea. A sea of green surrounding the land will appear as a greeting to all Irishmen of the Emerald Isle from the men of Aaron in Chicagoland, USA. Not only does Chicago let a few hard-drinking Irish plumbers screw around with their river, but when concerns are raised that they might not have thought this through and the media asks for a response, their reply is, guys, we are fucking legends for doing this. By 1964, the third year of the tradition, they learned that only 25 pounds of dye were needed to make the river green for about 24 hours and no more. For the first decade or so, they continued to use a chemical dye. But in the 1970s, they moved to an organic dye to minimize environmental impact. And today, they use around 40 pounds of an environmentally friendly organic dye. Other cities have tried to copy Chicago's tradition and dye their own respective river green for St. Patrick's Day. But luckily for Chicago, in terms of bragging rights, the plan is always vetoed by the relevant state's Environmental Protection Agency. Most recently, Saginaw, Michigan, the Saginaw River, and Fort Lauderdale, the new river, both attempted to copy the stunt and both were denied since the cities could not prove there would be no environmental impact from it. One of the reasons they cannot prove this is the only city in the world that actually does this, Chicago, has never attempted to show its effect. 
We've always just assumed our river is already so polluted that no amount of dye could possibly make it worse. And our experts agree. Asked to evaluate the risk of dyeing the river, Margaret Frisbee, the executive director of the Friends of the Chicago River Advocacy Group, said, The environmental impact of the dye is minimal compared with the sources of pollution, such as bacteria from raw sewage treatment plants. Only in Chicago could an environmental engineer seek to allay fears about possible damage to the city's main river from a festive makeover by reminding everyone that it's already full of shit. A night or so after I was named best drunk, my wife and I left a bar at last call and grabbed a cab. To me, a cab ride home after last call is the closest most Americans will get to a safari trip where you get to stare from the safety of your own vehicle at creatures and skirmishes not normally found in civilization. Men headbutting each other at full speed like rhinos competing for pasture. Women in high heels walking drunk like a newborn giraffe trying to find its legs. God, Jessica said after taking it all in, I can't believe I'm married to the worst drunk in this city. Best drunk. I corrected her. Ugh, is there a difference? Also, by the way, have you Googled yourself since you won this major award? I had not Googled myself. Upon arriving home that night, I did just that and discovered that when you Google Sean Flannery, the search engine would suggest helpfully, do you mean Sean Flannery drunk? The fact that Google, the modern world's broker of knowledge, Today's Library of Alexandria felt the need to clarify the inquiry in this manner is an unfortunate testament to the brilliance of the search engine. The fact that they would recommend rephrasing that question the same way you would at a party. Excuse me, do you know where Sean Flannery is? You mean Sean Flannery the drunk one, right? Shit, I said upon seeing these results. I had just started a job search for the first time in years, and this was probably not going to help my chances. Well, I mused aloud, maybe the people interviewing me won't Google me. For a technology job? Jessica asked sarcastically. God, I hate Google, I said, and I turned off the computer and went to bed. A few years before Google identified me only as Sean Flannery the Drunk, My buddy Mike texted me that he was at one of my favorite bars, Wrigleyville North, and he was looking to start a bender because his wife had left him. This is a matter you encounter often in Chicago. Not so much friends getting divorced, but people proposing a bender, like it's a nature walk or an architecture tour. Are you doing anything tomorrow? No? Come join me for seven Rob Roy's before lunch. I joined Mike, and we drank. He was initially bemoaning the fact that his marriage fell apart. But soon, he began to complain that because he and his now ex-wife had been together since high school, he had no idea how to talk to women anymore. I've been out of the game too long. I wouldn't even know how to sound cool, he explained. The dialogue has changed, right? Uh, I don't think so, I countered. Not, Not too much. Come on, it's different. What do you young guys call chicks? He asked. Mike is five years younger than me, by the way. I think it's pretty much the same terms from when we were growing up, I replied. Chicks, girls, ladies. No, he insisted. What's the new term? There's got to be one. 
You're hiding it from me. I assured him I was not hiding any terms, but he grabbed me by the lapels. He was so drunk, he was finding it impossible to believe his friend might be being honest. And then he suddenly said something so loud, so unexpected and vulgar, it it was like a meteorite fell from space, crashed through the roof of the bar, and knocked me to the floor. Let me guess, he spat. Slammable dick caves. What? You young guys, you call women slammable dick caves, right? He seemed to be suggesting it seriously. He honestly thought the phrase slammable dick caves, which beyond its contentious and highly objectionable tone, is an awkward, bulky mouthful. He thought that phrase had replaced the common terms of chick or lady during his seven years of marriage. I fell over laughing. The phrase seemed so crazy, so unexpected, and so silly, I thought that maybe it could actually catch on. I was so drunk, I began to think that slammable dick caves could conceivably become part of the American lingo. So I took out my phone and credit card, and while thinking, thank God I'm not as drunk as this guy, I registered the domain name slammabledickcaves.com on the internet. Not only did I register it, I expressed amazement that it was still available. You're not going to believe this, I told Mike after clicking about on my phone for a second or two. It's what, 2007? And slammabledickcaves.com is still available. And I really emphasized the .com to show we were getting the internet's best real estate. None of that .info or .org stuff for us. Are you serious? Mike questioned in wonderment. I know, I responded. You'd think some entrepreneur would have gobbled it up by now, right? We're going to make some serious dough off this. I have no recollection of what happened that night after registering slammabledickcaves.com. To be perfectly honest, I don't even recall buying slammabledickcaves.com the next morning. I left for a trip to New York with Jessica, thinking nothing about it. Three years later, almost to the day, I was in Ohio marrying Jessica. Jessica and I said our vows, had the best night of our lives, then spent a week in San Francisco and Napa Valley for our honeymoon. We returned to Chicago and entered our apartment on that great high that all newlyweds have when passing through their home's doorway for the first time as a married couple. After reminiscing a bit on the wedding and laughing, I went and made some coffee while Jessica picked up all the mail we had missed that was lying on the floor. I heard the sounds of letters being opened in the other room. Then Jessica's voice, tinged with confusion. Sean, what's this? More folding and opening sounds. Then, $300 for slammabledickcaves.com. It was a bill for registering and retaining the domain name slammabledickcaves.com. And once she said it, all the attached memories flooded back. The entire blackout unrolled in my mind, and I recalled buying the domain with Mike as though it had happened just minutes before. It was like when you choose to restore a file from the recycle bin. And I recalled that not only had I purchased slammabledickcaves.com, but had also drunkenly clicked yes to auto-renew the purchase in three years' time. Evidently, I had felt there was no way my business with slammabledickcaves.com could be completed in fewer than 36 months. Of all the gods in the pantheon, I know that Cupid has the best sense of humor. 
Because what was I doing on that day exactly three years into the future when SlammableDickCaves.com renewed itself on my credit card? Marrying the love of my life. $300 for a website, she exclaimed. A website called what? SlammableDickCaves.com? A quick aside, if I may. Although she probably wasn't ready to admit it at the time, I could tell by the way Jessica overpronounced the .com that she was actually impressed that I had secured the most prestigious and official version of the domain name. What the hell are you into? She spluttered. I entered the room and answered with confidence. Okay, first of all, I'm not into it. I own it. What? You're not talking to some customer of SlammableDickCaves.com. I am the owner and operator. I went on to explain the situation. Mike saying this farcical phrase and me drunkenly registering the domain. And Jessica laughed, but she did mention that we were low on money and should avoid such empty-headed purchases in the future. I agreed completely and went online and changed my account to ensure that SlammableDickCaves.com would not, once again, Renew itself in three years. Well, you got three years to make it work now, I murmured while making the change. Who are you talking to? Jessica asked. I paused. SlammableDickCaves.com, I I guess. And with that, SlammableDickCaves.com receded into the dark storage room in the back of my brain, and again, I more or less forgot about it. A few years later, myself and Jessica were expecting our first baby, so I had to return to work. My trade at the time was software development, with a specialty in identity and security applications. I was contacted by a bank and interviewed with them. It went well. I mostly answered technical questions. A second interview was scheduled, and I was told that due to their security regulations, a background check would need to be performed, which I had no problem with. I entered the second interview, expecting it to go just as smoothly as the first, but was soon struck by how many non-technical people were in the room, almost as if a trial was about to start. An older woman with a folder full of papers introduced herself as one of the team leads and said that, the background check having been completed, they now had a lot of questions. Mr. Flannery, on the application and resume that you submitted to us, have you listed all your professions? She asked, that is to say, have you given a complete account of all the ways you make money? I think so, yes, I replied. Really? Everything. I don't know if I listed anything past 10 years ago. My high school jobs didn't seem relevant. But within the last 10 years, yes. Well, I I do perform stand-up comedy at night, but it's, it's not a lot of money. And I did mention that in the interview. There was a pause while she collected herself. All right, let me just come out and ask it, Mr. Flannery. Are you a pornographer? What? I responded, shocked. No, uh, of course not. My mind began to race. What could have prompted them to ask such a ludicrous question? All of a sudden, it hit me, and I asked, Wait, is this about slammabledickcaves.com? When I hear friends talking about job interviews... They are usually uncertain of how it went, whether the employer considered them the right fit or not. I, on the other hand, marvel at the notion of leaving an interview with this kind of doubt. My interviews are like watching a long jump skier landing. 
everyone in the building knows instantly if it went well or was a horrifying disaster. Do you expect to get a call back from them, Sean? Well, they are a bank that asked me if I am a pornographer. So, no, Eddie, I don't think I will ever hear from them again. A year or so after that, I got a call from a telemarketer. There's something called internet squatting, which is a swindle, where people look for domains that have been registered for multiple years and wait for them to expire. Then they immediately buy them, with the intent of selling them back to the original owner at a huge premium. See, many domains expire accidentally. Perhaps the owner wished to keep it longer, but didn't realize the lease was ending. Or maybe they changed their contact or billing info and the domain couldn't be processed automatically. In those cases, the original owners who created the domain now have to spend a huge amount of money to get their site back from these internet squatters. Mr. Scene Flannery? The telemarketer slash squatter asked. One of the nice things about having a Gaelic spelling of your name is the telemarketers immediately identify themselves by calling me Scene, never Sean. Hello, is Scene Flannery there? Yes, this is Scene. Okay, may I call you Scene? I very much prefer to go by Scene, yes. Well, you have allowed your internet domain to lapse. And Scene, I'm afraid it's been purchased by another firm. But for a small fee, I can buy it back and return it to your ownership, Scene. I've owned a few domains over the years, and I had no idea which domain he was referring to. And honestly, I thought it might be one that I actually cared about retaining. I own, or have owned, a few domains. Can you tell me which domain it is, to see if I still want it? Of course, Scene. Because, Scene, I don't want you to lose this great business opportunity you had going on at... Uh, oh. At this point, it became obvious to me that this call must be about slammabledickcaves.com. And this guy hadn't looked at the domain in question until this exact moment. What business opportunity am I missing? I asked. Uh, well, it's, uh, sorry, uh, someone here is talking. Um, it, let's see, it, it's your cave domain. Seeing the cave domain, it expired. My cave domain? Could you give me the full name so there's zero confusion? Slammable Dick Caves dot com. Slammable Dick Caves dot com? I confirmed. Yes, Mr. Scene. Mr. Scene, I bring terrible news. Slammable Dick Caves dot com is in the hands of your competitors. Technology Corner. According to a survey released in 2018, 40% of Americans admit to purchasing goods online while drunk, and the total annual sales for those drunk purchases is estimated to exceed $30 billion. To put that number in perspective, McDonald's had about $28 billion in sales the same year. Meaning, our drunk shopping is so unrestrained, it exceeds the worldwide sales figures for what is often considered to be the most well-marketed company in business history. Well before the internet, scientists knew that we spend more money when hammered. Not that we need a doctor from Oslo to tell us that, yeah, we don't make our most judicious financial decisions on a Friday night. We spend more when drunk due to a combination of social and mental changes. Socially, we like the happiness rush of buying things for ourselves or others. 
We also use displays of money to impress people, to establish social dominance. And as you get more drunk, your need to make people happy or impress them increases, resulting in you spending more money. And mentally, our brain slows down as we become drunk, to the point where we cannot correctly tabulate how much money we are spending. This is often why you start your night with a promise like, just one, maybe two drinks, I'm broke. Then, three hours later, you have your credit card down at the bar and are ordering drinks for people like you are a Walmart heir. We do not realize we cannot afford this. But 30 years ago, the worst damage a drunk could do to their fiscal well-being was an exorbitant amount of drinks and food. Then the internet happened, and now drunks are buying a grill or an above-ground pool or a sword. Previously, the kind of places that sold those things were closed by 9 p.m. and would not do business with you until the morning. Imagine how rich you would need to be to purchase a battle axe at 2 a.m. 20 years ago. You would need to be sufficiently powerful to wake up a small business owner assuring them that they do not want to miss a sale from you and they travel to the store to unlock and light it just for your single purchase. But with the internet, countless businesses say, yes, we would love the opportunity to sell you a battle axe at 2 in the morning. We are eminently ready to take your money. A price comparison website, Confused.com, published a report on drunk shopping in England in 2014 and said one in five consumers admitted they shop online when buzz, with the average drunk purchase coming to 142 pounds. The report detailed recent examples, which are amazing. One person bought 10 lobster pots while drunk, while others snapped up diving equipment, a folding ladder, and a washing machine. Going by that list, it reads like Brits come home drunk and starving and start believing that maybe they could fetch a late-night snack from the ocean if they had the right equipment. Let's see, it's half past two in the morning, so the fish and chips shop is closed. But now, the sea itself is only a three-block walk. If only I had me a lobster pot and a ladder, I'd be eating like royalty. Of course, my pants will stink of brine after catching all those lobsters. Better order me a washing machine, too. 